Welcome to the Music, Mind, and Movement podcast. This show features interviews with musicians, educators, health professionals, and many more who take a holistic view of the musician's life. Together we explore some of the unique physical and mental challenges that musicians face and how we can meet these challenges in ways that help us grow both as musicians and as healthy, creative, resilient humans. I'm Karen Bulmer, and today I'm speaking with Cody Weisbach. Cody is a physical therapist with an interest in musicians' health, and in particular, he is interested in empowering musicians with tools so that they can help themselves. He is a clear thinker and an incredibly clear communicator, so we were able to cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about recovery and how being very intentional about recovery is important, not just for injury prevention, but also for reaching high levels of performance. We talk about sports performance and how musicians can learn a lot from the world of sports and exercise science, but that there are some limits on the transferability of activities and concepts and training regimes from the world of sports. So we talk a little bit about musicians' particular needs and how they can best be met. We talk about pain, what it is, what it isn't, what it tells us about what's going on in our body and what it might not be telling us about what's going on in our body. And we talk a little bit about the biopsychosocial model more generally. So this is a model of health that considers the human being within the context of their whole life. So not just looking at physical factors for injury and recovery, but looking at social factors and psychological factors as well. Cody offers some advice for musicians who may be looking to start an exercise or strength training program, including some thoughts on parts of the body that musicians may want to focus on. And just a heads up, some of these parts of the body are kind of surprising, like the hips. And lots more. This is one of these conversations that went in a number of different directions, and it was super fun. I learned a ton. This is another conversation where you will hear my wheels turning a little bit. So I found that in talking to Cody, um, my thinking about a few issues was really clarified and became more nuanced. So I hope that you get as much out of this and enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Cody. Hi, Cody, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. I'm very appreciative that you woke up probably before sunrise, I'd say, there in Colorado. Oh, much before sunrise, yeah. <laughs> it feels pretty early to me here in Eastern Canada. <laughs> so typically, we start off the show with a musical autobiography. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about your musical background, and then also how you um, kind of veered off at a certain point into physical therapy, and how you got interested in music, musicians' health. Sure. Um, so... Musical background is is more kind of a casual musical background. I've uh, been around music my whole life. Uh, my grandfather uh, played violin and sang in a small town in North Dakota and had a little orchestra where they played all the weddings and funerals in the area. And that got passed down to my mother, who's a very good singer. Um, and so we always had music around the house. And I started guitar lessons, I think, at six or seven because I refused to play piano uh, and did that for a while. And then in elementary school, picked up the saxophone and played through elementary school and middle school and then tenor saxophone in high school and played a lot of jazz then. And along the way, liked tinkering around with other instruments and played a little bit of trumpet mm -hmm. along the way too. Um, but around high school, I kind of, um, you know, I was medium serious, but I was, I was never at risk of overuse injury from practicing too much, shall we say? <laughs> and, um, you know, decided that a career in music was probably not the direction that I was going to take. Uh, so I lost connection with, with music for a while. I still, I still played here and there, mostly guitar at that time and kind of picked it back up again later on in college, meeting some friends and they had a, you know, band set up and, I knew how to play guitar, and so we kind of, they, they brought me into their band and played gigs around the Boulder and Denver area for a couple of years, uh, but again, it was pretty clear that we weren't going to make it big at any point, so uh, I moved up to the Boston area for physical therapy school and pursued that, and that kind of took over my time, and I lost, again, connection with music for, for a good long time um, and got 
pretty deep into the PT world and and did a lot of interesting things there. But it was kind of just recently I was in a, a meeting with a, I, when I was in the Boston area, I treated several people from the Berkeley College of Music and always thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is a really, you know, I, I really like music. I really miss music. Um, but I was kind of off on a different path at that point. And uh, at a, a meeting not too long ago, uh, one of my colleagues was mentioning how during one of her internships, she would go around the Chicago area uh, with a, a mentor and uh, do assessments on the orchestral musicians in the area. And at that point, something like I was like, my career right now is is good, but there was something kind of missing. There was like, who who am I really uh, devoting my time and, and knowledge to? And something just kind of clicked, and I was like, do you know what? There's something there. I think that's something I have to look at. And so I started. I'm a I'm a big research nerd, uh-huh. and so I I dove into the research and and found, wow, there is a whole lot of pretty good research on musicians' health out there. And I'm not really seeing it uh, applied yeah. that well. I wonder if there's something there. And then I have this whole other uh, background in pain science and uh, teaching folks about how pain works. And I'm like, wow, there's really something there. I have all this information in this corner. Um, I wonder if it's something that I can help with. So I started posting stuff, and uh, people were fairly responsive. I was pretty surprised. So. So it's been it's been really fun. I'm I don't know that I can say that I'm a specialist in musicians' health yet, since this is a fairly new uh, interest. But I think that the the needs of musicians and the the things that I've learned and the skills that I've acquired along the way there's a there's a good match there. So yeah. So I've adopted musicians. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think musicians need to be adopted a bit um in in a in a much more specialized way by healthcare professionals. I 100% agree. And one of the things that I've really appreciated about some of the things that you've shared on social media and through your own podcast which by the way I will link to in the show notes cuz people should check it out it's fantastic. But one of the things that I've really appreciated about your work is that you present concepts that are quite complex in some ways, but also um, can be can seem sort of mysterious. I think I think the body can seem very mysterious to musicians. Um, and you present it in a very clear and accessible way. And one of the ways that you talk about musicians' health and injury prevention is through this cup analogy. And I'm wondering if you could um, describe what the cup analogy is. Sure. Yeah. So that's a uh, one of my one of my favorite analogies. I find a lot of time during my day I'm I'm thinking uh, technically and speaking in metaphors and analogies because that's the only way that people uh, understand. And the body's complicated, but uh, certainly very understandable. Uh, so the 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 water in the cup analogy is is an analogy for how, uh, I guess one analogy for how injuries may occur or pain may occur. So if you, you think of your body as a cup and water as all of the things that you do, uh, the, the short version of it is that if you pour enough in the cup that it overflows, uh, bad things happen. And it's, a, it's an interesting cup in that you are continually draining that cup out. So if uh, more goes in than you were able to drain out, you can experience pain or injury. And so that kind of leads leads me to think about treatment or prevention in a couple of ways. You can either reduce how much you're putting in the cup, uh, which usually people don't like. That's not very much fun to do less. <laughs> you can make the cup larger, which is essentially strength training or stress tolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can get better at draining the cup, which is uh, recovery strategies. Right. Yeah, and so so when it comes to musicians, do you feel like there are so I, I think, you know, like you say, um putting less in the cup is is not an option for most musicians. And and you've said this in your own podcast, and I think many of us would agree that we want to be able to put as much in the cup as we can. We want to get as close to the, you know, if we wanna if we wanna be at a very high level, we need to be able to fill that cup as much as we can. Where do you think musicians need to focus on on draining the cup or on building the new cup 
uh, like a bigger cup or both? I think both. I think the easiest place to go is recovery first. Mm -hmm. That's going to give you the most immediate bang for your buck and uh, quick wins help keep momentum. Uh, and the building the cup strategies take a long time. So that's building the cup is a long-term, but a more sustainable strategy. The recovery strategies help you much more quickly. So they're great to get started with. And, uh, but they can be quite transient. You can get in this up and down. I do a lot. I recover barely. I do a lot. I recover barely. And so combining the two is, is the way that I tend to, to look at a treatment plan. I don't think that we can ignore the pouring less in. I just think that, especially for a lot of the, the things that I've been reading, a lot of the, a lot of what's out there seems to be in the pour less in category, sit up taller, um, improve your posture, uh, things, things like that. Right. But I don't, I don't, we can't ignore the fact that if you're putting a bunch of, I guess you, you might consider them junk hours in the practice room, like not deliberate practice. You yeah. can't throw, you can't throw time at a, um, at a problem like that. Right. Uh, you know, you want to be efficient with your practice. You do want to have a good, efficient posture, uh, or position. I like to call it more these days Yeah. Uh, while you're playing, um, and so, and there's there's many other aspects to pour less in the cup. Uh, it's not just physical. It's uh, pain and injury is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. So the bio is what's going on at your tissues. The psycho is all of the emotional stress that that one may be under, and musicians tend to be under quite a bit. Uh, and the social can influence things as well. So I think those are all options to pour a little bit less in as well if you can reframe those things. Yeah, that's there. There's a lot in what you just said. I'm writing some notes so I don't lose my train of thought. No problem. Stop me anytime. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's great because there's there's kind of three threads there that I would love to explore in more depth. Sure. Um, maybe separately. Um, so the first would be recovery, um, and to yep. speak a little bit more specifically about that, and then about how to build the cup. Um, and then also this idea of the biopsychosocial model so that um, just to maybe go into that a little bit more deeply, because I think that will be new to many people. Sure. So can we go to recovery yep. and, and talk about recovery as an active strategy um, and not just kind of like the time off between when you're working, but as something a little bit more deliberate and intentional? Sure. So this is an area where I think... Um, Sports and, and athletes get compared to musicians a lot. And I think in a lot of cases, their needs are quite different. So we don't want to borrow too much from sports performance. Mm -hmm. But one of the big areas that's been, I guess, focused on to the great benefit of athletes is recovery strategies. So it's not looked at just looked at as passive rest. There's a lot of it. You want it to be something to be really effective. Uh, you want it to be something that's planned and active and scheduled in, not just something you might catch here and there. Um, but the, the research is pretty clear that uh, on, on a couple of areas, uh, one big one is sleep. Uh, there's a pretty strong r correlation between having less sleep and being more prone to injury. Uh, so sleep is, sleep is a huge one, uh, making sure that you're getting enough and restorative sleep and making sure that that's scheduled into your, into your time. Um, it's also very important for, uh, just the, the solidifying of the skills that you practice in the practice room. That's, that's where your nervous system puts together that muscle memory that you're trying to create from a, just from a surely musical performance standpoint. So right. it has performance benefits as well as, uh, recovery, injury risk reduction benefits. Um, another place for recovery that I use a lot is some basic light movement, whether it be yoga, whether it be, I like having people self-mobilize with tennis balls and various things like that, taking care of those stiff and sore bits of your body, um, that, that we all end up with here and there. Uh, recovery can also be just things that can downregulate your system. I use a lot of paced breathing strategies with people. Some folks like meditation. I think some more mindfulness-based movement practices like Feldenkrais uh, can fall into this category quite nicely as well. Yeah. 
And my, my personal favorite one is moving your body outside with people that you care about. Yes. <laughs> that, that seems that there's, again, there's a, I haven't dove into it too much, but there's a, a body of research looking at how just being in the outdoors affects us in all of these positive ways and how being, as I guess we'll get to it with the biopsychosocial, but um, being with people that we care about, doing enjoyable things, does really nice things for our system. Yeah. Yeah, you and I are both lucky that we live in very beautiful places with um, with wonderful outdoor opportunities very close by. But I would agree with you there that that is a that's one of the one of the best ones. Um, I've heard you talk a bit on your own podcast as well about um, taking little mini breaks during practice. Would you also consider this to be a form of recovery? Yeah, those are little. They get called micro breaks. Yeah. Um, little, little mini stops to, to uh, the, the analogy that I use for that is, uh, if you're hiking in the desert and you wait until your mouth is dry until uh, to to drink water, you're already a little bit dehydrated and you can drink a lot, uh, but you're not going to catch up. So right. the rest of your hike is probably going to be a little bit crummy. Similarly, if you're practicing and you wait until something is stiff and sore to try and move it you're already behind and you can move it all you want, but it's probably not going to loosen up that well for you and the rest of your practice session uh, or performance is going to be uncomfortable. So if you can uh, do little movements here and there, uh, that can be an opportunity to drain the cup just a little bit so that you can keep pouring more in uh, without it getting uh, too far ahead of you. Yeah. So those, you know, I... There's two that I tend to use with people. One of them is to just put your arms up over your head, take a big breath in and reach, reach, reach up to the ceiling. And another one where you uh, have your arms by your sides and rotate your thumbs back and lift your chest, keeping your chin down and get that nice squeeze in your middle back. But there's really endless possibilities for that. You can find really anything that works for you. But the key is that it only takes, you know, five to 10 seconds to do, not five to 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. And do you think... My, my sense is that musicians are kind of resistant to the to this whole recovery part of practice that that there's a sense in the musical community. I don't know if this is your experience as well, but i i i I've certainly experienced this in myself, and I see it in my students that there's a there's a resistance or a reluctance to take time off or to schedule recovery to to plan recovery as part of preparing for performance or just preparing for life as a musician do you do you experience that as well and do you have a sense of why that might be i i, I certainly think that that's that's out there there's still this mindset that more 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 yeah is better um i think again i think musicians health is you know a good decade maybe more behind uh sports performance health so i think this is an opportunity for smart musicians to pick up on some of these strategies early and they can, uh, they can, they could benefit a lot from that. You know, one of the big differences between the pro athlete and the amateur athlete is, uh, how well they plan their rest and recovery. Amateurs just like to go, 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 go. And there's a reason why they end up being amateurs. And, and pro athletes tend to have people programming that and making them, uh, recover better. Yeah. So, so I think that there's a lot of opportunity for people who are early adopters to this uh, to improve their playing, be able to tolerate playing more, which means that you're going to be able to play better and not have your body hurt so much. Yeah. Which, which I that that to me seems to be the main one of the main limiters in performance for musicians is just it to become really good, you need to spend a lot of time on your instrument. Yeah which means that your body needs to be able to spend a lot of time on your instrument. Right. So if you can if you can adjust your situation so that your body can tolerate that, so that you're you're effectively draining the cup and you've built your cup bigger, you can pour a lot more in, which yeah. means that you have a lot more opportunity uh, to to develop as a musician. Yeah. Yeah, and it it strikes me too that that um you know, music schools, so university music programs, training programs, and other organizations like professional orchestras and other organizations 
have some role to play here too. You know, when I look at my students, for example, I they're so busy, the demands on them are so extreme, I think in some cases that it's um it's I think very difficult for them to be strategic about things like recovery because they really are overwhelmed with um, responsibilities and tasks. Oh, sure. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Which means it more, the, the more reason to me to be strategic with it. Yeah. The, one of the difficulties, one of the reasons why I think it's really hard is that the, the health and fitness industry is, is a little bit of a mess. It's hard to navigate your way through. Right. The, the problem isn't knowing that you should do something. The problem is that there, there just seems to be endless possibilities of what you, one could do. Yeah. And you, you end up with this paradox of choice, so you do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of, my, one of my goals is to, I guess, condense some of that down and make it really actionable. Yeah. So it's just try this, try that, because there's a lot of stuff out there that's can take you in wrong wrong directions, or I yeah. guess not so much wrong, but directions that aren't going to support your music. Yeah, I've I've talked a couple of times about borrowing from sports performance, um, but there's a lot of aspects of sports performance that's just more time doing things that aren't going to support music. Right. Yeah. So we don't we don't want to we don't want to borrow too closely from it because again I think the the needs of athletes and musicians are very different. Like I I I've, I hear frequently that musicians are athletes and i think that athletes athletes are a little bit different i think that we need to appreciate the the physicality of playing music yeah um but the needs of athletes are different than the needs of musicians without without going too far down this as a rabbit mm-hmm. hole can could you maybe briefly describe the ways in which you think athletes and musicians needs are different the biggest one is that uh, physical training for athletes will improve their athletic performance. Mm-hmm. Physical training for musicians doesn't improve, doesn't necessarily improve their musical performance. Okay. So if if I'm an athlete and I can squat more, there's a there's a a good likelihood that I'm going to run faster. Right. If I'm a musician, you know, if I'm a violin player and I can squat more, that's not going to change how well I play. Right. If I can do more push-ups, that doesn't change how I can play. It might change uh, how my body feels when I play, mm-hmm. which is important, but it doesn't have a direct performance response. Right. And there's there's a fair amount of research out there on that as well. There's some injury risk reduction studies where they'll put musicians through a, um, you know, a, a course of training. They'll measure how they feel feel in terms of injuries and they'll also measure how they feel in terms of the fatigue they get when they're playing and their injuries improve and the risk of injuries improve the fatigue of playing is kind of similar yeah that's interesting so would you say do you think it's accurate to say that um training your body if you're a musician training your body supports you or let let me ask this a different question then so knowing that why would a musician spend time training their body so that they don't get hurt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the biggest reason. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's, it, 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 I really don't think that it's, I think there's too many uh, counterexamples out there of of musicians who are clearly not like fit or conditioned. Yeah. Um, who are amazing. Right. So we can't, we can't say that it's, it's got to be the, the training. Right. It's un, if you look at, uh, an Olympic athlete, you're not going to see a lot of Olympic athletes who are not incredibly fit. Right. They they have to be to compete at that level. Musicians don't necessarily have to be fit per se, but their body has to be able to tolerate the making the physicality of making music. Right. And I think those are fundamentally different. Fitness and and sort of the tolerance for the the strain that music puts on your body. Correct. Yeah. So interesting. This this maybe does actually segue nicely back into this idea then of building the cup. Yes, it so does. that we can we can tolerate more um, input, more stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the way that that I think about it is the your your training program should should be more focused. I guess less on 
strength or fitness per se, or, you know, aesthetic fitness or what have you. Mm-hmm. And more on the building of, of resilience is the, the term that I like, this ability to absorb stress and not have something fail because of it. Right. And so there's a, the, the best way to do that, quite frankly, is some type of strength training. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the effort of, of doing your strength training, uh, you want to make sure that you don't injure yourself strength training. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because that's 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 not okay. Yeah. Um, the there's a, a trainer in the Boston area who who ended up being the the trainer for the Red Sox who I, I haven't been able to find the attribution that it's from him, but I'm pretty sure that it is. Who who basically said the rules of the gym are number one, don't get injured in the gym. Yeah. Number two, reduce your injury risk, and number three, try and lift something heavier. Right. Something along those lines. Because, again, if we take a professional sports team analogy, if the trainer of the sports team has their players getting injured in the gym, that trainer's going to get fired awful fast. Yeah. So so it has to be biased towards, number one, not getting hurt doing it. Number two, reducing your risk of, of injury. In which case, uh, that means, I guess, to me, targeting certain areas that tend to be associated with uh, injury risk reduction First, not so much uh, general fitness. Yeah, yeah. This it's it's interesting. I I feel like I see this coming up more and more in different ways. This idea that even for the general population, so not even for for someone who's interested in like high level musical or athletic perfor- performance, that it's not always the best strategy to just go at it as hard as you possibly can. That something that's going to be more sustainable and enjoyable over the long term is generally going to give you a better bang for your buck. Yeah, I 100% agree. And here's one of the big reasons why is that in terms of how your different tissues adapt to exercise, your nervous system adapts very quickly. So you'll feel stronger within a week or two. And that's just your, your nerves using your muscles more efficiently. Yeah. Over about six weeks of training, your muscle fibers will get physically bigger and you'll be able to do more. But it takes a good six to eight months before you're joints, ligaments, uh, tendons, discs, all of those adapt as well. So all of those other tissues that tend to be the ones that get injured adapt very slowly. So what can happen is people build strength and then they can, their muscles can do things that the rest of them can't handle yet. And so you can create injuries that way. So you want to look at your building the cup strategy is not a a six-week program, but a, this is going to be something that's going on for you know, six, eight months, year, maintaining it. Yeah. Which means that you just slow everything down. It's not about trying to get strong right now. This is about, it's, it becomes a habit change problem more than it does a a strength and conditioning problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. So how do you suggest that musicians approach this? I mean, you mentioned a, a couple of moments ago, this idea of focusing on areas of the body that tend to get injured. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your thoughts on that and also maybe um, like what types of exercises or equipment or um, that sort of thing you might suggest. So in terms of, um, I'm going to do a brief answer to the second one first is that I don't, I don't think it matters too much the type of equipment or, or things like that. I think there's a whole, uh, a whole host of, uh, different things that you can do. And to a degree, it depends on what you find interesting and fits into your schedule Yeah, uh, that, that satisfies it. In terms of getting started, though, I think that it makes the most sense to, to start targeting some of these smaller muscle groups that tend to be problematic. Again, we have data that they, they do tend to be problematic in, in musicians and, and to build slowly from there. And, and a lot of these muscle groups uh, have there's there's a, a group of studies that I'm I'm thinking of particularly by uh, a guy from Australia named Clifton Chan uh, who did a PhD on a uh, exercise program directed towards uh, high level orchestral musicians in Australia uh, in terms of uh, playing related pain mm-hmm. and so they targeted. Uh, around the neck, the the deep neck flexor muscle group, and the I guess the, some smaller muscles on the back of the neck. Yeah. They targeted rotator cuff muscles. They t- targeted the little shoulder blade muscles, 
some abdominal muscles and lower back muscles and kind of deep side of the hip muscles. Hmm. And then I would, I'd throw in there adding in some thoracic spine mobility yeah. um, as well. One of, one of my mentors said thoracic spine mobility is like green leafy vegetables. Everybody could use more of those. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> yeah. What, what, um, why are the hips important for musicians? Uh, so some of these deep muscles on the side of your hips have been associated with low back pain with prolonged standing. Hmm. So yeah. So I, I think in in terms of the uh, areas that tend to be painful for musicians, it tends to be hand, finger, wrist first, then shoulder, neck, um, and then we start getting down into the lower back later on. So those would be certainly further down my list. Yeah. But there can be, especially for the prolonged standing, they, there is an association with that with low back pain. So Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I get a lot of, I, I teach some movement classes for musicians here where mm-hmm. I teach, and um, I, I get a lot of requests for hip things. Mm-hmm. It's probably what I get the most requests for and the oh, most feedback if we do a class that's focused on on the outer hips or the the deep internal and external rotators, mm-hmm. um, people people love it. But it's not an area we typically think that we need to address as musicians. No, but it's it's an area that I address all day long as a PT. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so a lot of this, um, it sounds like, is is balancing out some of so like when so the muscles around the shoulder blades and in the rotator cuff. So these are the muscles that that rotate the upper arm bone in the glenohumeral joint. Um, they this is in many cases, I think balancing out some of the movements that we do when we're playing our instruments, is that, would that be accurate? Or yeah, just strengthening those muscles? It's, it's just, I don't know if I, if I would necessarily use the, the word uh, balancing out, because I think that those muscles do have a, a lot of responsibility mm, in the, yeah. in the playing of, of music. Uh-huh. I think frequently, like, back to the water in the cup analogy, one way that I think about this is that we tend to get very good at filling some cups a lot. So if we think of our body as a collection of cups rather than just one big cup, yeah, uh, we tend to get really good at filling one cup more than another. And there's certain patterns in the body where, you know, some cups are, we just find an easy workaround. Like, oh, this one's much easier to fill. So let's just fill that a lot. Yeah. And the other one doesn't get used as much. Uh, so rotator cuff muscles tend to be one of those muscles where it gets easy to not use them as much. Yeah. So having a consistent practice of of using them is uh, can be helpful. It tends to be tends to be helpful. Cool. And I tend to attribute that with, I don't. I I like looking at our body through an evolutionary lens mm-hmm. a lot. I think it's quite interesting. And I think if you think about where we where we came from, we don't use our shoulders or many other areas of the body yeah. the way that they were originally designed to be used. Right. Which is fine. We can do a lot more interesting things with them now. Yeah. Than hunting, hunting and gathering. Right. But uh, you know, we, I don't certainly don't want to go back to that. Yeah. But but also we have to respect that there's this this deep history of how our shoulders and other areas of our body have resolved. And there's a little bit of a mismatch between how we might use them now. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I talk about this a lot with with students that I work with, that we just, the, the demands on our, um, yeah, the, to, of how we use our upper body, even how we use um, the muscles of our core. Like we, we're not required to balance that much in our daily lives. We don't have nope. to climb and, you know, pull ourselves up into a tree to get food and that sort of thing. Um, And I even notice when I think about, I grew up, you know, sort of in the 70s, 80s. And even though I was not an athletic child at all, I was a very active kid. Like the kids kind of, we were a lot more feral back then than than we are today. And I think that actually has has served me quite well as a musician. I think there was just a certain level of movement variability that I had in my day-to-day life that I think kids don't have as much anymore. Yeah, and I think that that hits on, an, I guess, uh, a part of the building the cup strategies. You you have a couple of strategies. One of them is the typical exercise strategy, 
Mm-hmm. And one of them would, might be a more movement-based strategy, which can be a little bit more interesting. So as, as I talk about, you know, focus on this area, focus on that area, that's one way to do it. And we know that we know the results of that, but that doesn't also mean that it's the, the only way to do it. So you, you could certainly, and there's a lot of interesting approaches out there that, that I think might be, might be beneficial. You, you might be, you might look at it from a just general movement in increasing the variability of your movement uh, throughout your day. So exploring some hanging might be, might be interesting, or there's, you know, there's systems out there like MoveNat yeah. uh, that have some interesting things, or there's another one, um, uh, gmb.io, mm-hmm. uh, a couple gymnast guys who uh, do more movement-based type things. So I think that there's lots of opportunity for that. The The trick with those is that they tend to be uh, a little bit more, I, I, I want to say chaotic right now, I guess, less controlled. Yeah. So it can be, it can be harder keep, to keep track of, did that bother me? Or they they assume a certain level of capacity as you get started. Yeah. So the it can be a little bit harder to manage that that injury risk. So you so you gain interest in something more uh, more fun, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, but it's a little bit less controlled. So so a lot of times I'll I I tend to recommend starting off with something a little bit more controlled, building some capacity, spending some time with that. And then starting to explore some of the more interesting ways to move. Because I don't think that a just train your rotator cuff approach is necessarily sustainable for a career. No, and I also think... What's that? Sorry? You probably want to keep track of it and and throw it in there here and there. But uh, it's not very much fun. (laughs) Yeah, and and I think that musicians can be very can almost get a little bit too detail oriented and too concerned about doing everything correctly. I mean, I think this is part of being a classical musician, um, that we are so detail oriented and so dialed into, um, you know, very, very sort of minute differences in sensation and movement and these things and the effects of those differences and I find it can be really helpful, um, you know, just in the movement classes that I teach to to sort of toggle back and forth between these things or to sort of prepare the body with something really, really targeted. Um, and then to maybe do something a little bit more playful or task-based that maybe makes use of those um, those muscles that we kind of woke up, but in a more um, sort of self-organizing way, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, P- and it's that, fun. I, mean, I think it is, generally we fun. just need more playfulness. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's the the musicians up by you are very lucky to have you up there because that's that's a great thing to organize for them. It's also really hard for those who are trying to train on their own to organize for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Which is that's the that's that's one of the tricky parts is um I guess I I see some of the I see hesitance in the, the, I guess, musicians' population to engage in some of this, and tend to think that there's there's a greater likelihood that people at least start uh, by doing things on their own, yeah, and then perhaps explore some of these other areas if they're available. But I'm I'm pretty interested in how we get people because again, from a, I guess from a, fitness and even more so an injury standpoint, there's there, my sense is that there's a significant taboo. Uh, about talking about it or things like that. So part of what I'd like to do is uh, help people sort out how they, uh, the the website that I've made is called Musicians Maintenance. I want to help people figure out how they maintain themselves uh, to a degree without uh, having to, I guess without having to push some of those taboos, at least at this point. And s- sorry, so what what are you saying that you're sensing is taboo? Is talking about discussion in- discussion of injury? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and even exercise to a degree. Yeah, yeah. I think that seems to be changing. Is my sense? I hope so. I, I sense it as well. Yeah, I think it's. Um, you know, I would love this to be just a more um, in integral part of how musicians 
are trained. So it's kind of a no brainer that that all musicians, all classical musicians, at least go through this, you know, fairly standard theory curriculum, for example. Sure. And and it would be, um, it would just be lovely, I think, if musicians were also developing a certain amount of kinesthetic and anatomical and just general body literacy as well. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned a few moments ago about the idea that we don't have just one cup. So instead of thinking about the cup analogy as one cup, we have, there's many cups. And so you talked, uh, you, you, you brought this up in the context of sort of maybe different parts of the body being different cups. But I think this also um, ties into the biopsychosocial model as well, that um, so you alluded earlier to the idea that it's not just a matter of, of what we're physically putting into the cup, but also our emotional and social lives. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. So there's one of the biggest misconceptions about pains that it's an accurate representation of the, the degree and location of some kind of damage to our body. And if you think about it a little bit more deeply, uh, it's, that's, that's not really pain's function. Pain's function is to protect us and to get us to do something different. And my favorite example of this is ice cream headaches or the, the brain freeze headache, <laughs> where you drink something cold, a lot of yeah. it, and then you get this massive pain behind the eyes. My dad likes to say, it feels like a little man with pliers is grabbing the backs of my eyeballs. And... And it's, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And But the, the location of the discomfort is not accurate. That's coming from nerves on your soft palate on the inside of your mouth, not behind your eyeballs. Uh-huh. The intensity is out of proportion to the degree of danger. Right. You're just, you know, you're, you're just drinking a, a smoothie too fast. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not, not an emergency. It's, it's, it's not that dangerous, but it's wildly uncomfortable. Yeah. But it makes you stop every single time. Right. So its its purpose is not to give you accurate information about the location or degree. Its its purpose is to change your behavior in some way. So it's all about uh, protection and threat. So one of the I I teach uh, or I'm I guess I'm affiliated with a group out of Australia that's uh, written some books about pain education, such as Explain Pain, and you know they're they they're associated with a, a researcher who does some phenomenal research. Uh, in the in the pain space, and so they've they've come up with this, I guess, simple to use or simple to understand definition of pain in that it's uh, your brain weighs evidence for credible safety versus evidence for credible threat, and if you have more evidence for credible threat than safety, you'll experience some type of protection. Pain being one element of protection. Um, other elements of protection can be tightening of the muscles. It can be uh, changes in the hormones in your bloodstream. It can be moving your system from more rest and relax to fight or flight. Uh, and it can also be the production of, uh, I guess, anxious thoughts mm-hmm. or worrisome, worrisome thoughts. Uh, so all of those are part of a protective response. And it turns out that it doesn't have to be actual threat or safety. It's just evidence for credible threat or safety. Right. So if you take a group of people, and this study's been done, where you give them a certain amount of painful stimuli on their arm, let's Mm -hmm. say, and then you show them a blue light or you show them a red light, the people who see the red light will experience more, they'll report more pain than the people who see the blue light. So just, just a little change in, in our, in what we're looking at and where red tends to be associated with danger. Now we feel more pain. Wow. So it's, it's a pretty easy system to, to play with. Uh, you can get social cues from it as well. So I've got two young kids, and if they fall down, before they start screaming, they look up at me to see how horrified I look. <laughs> and if I look horrified, they're, it's going to hurt more. And I yeah. think that they're actually experiencing more pain because it's more worrisome yeah. to them. So there's all of these these elements that can uh, that can flow into that. And so the, this group uses this model. We call them dims and sims, or danger in me and safety in me. And so you can look at look at yourself and see what's what's the danger in me, what's the safety in me, and how does it outweigh? One piece of that is what's going on with the tissues of your body. Are they overstressed? Is there inflammation? All of those things, and that's hugely influential. But there's also what's going on in my environment. Who am I around? Um, what's my stress level? 
all of these types of things can influence pain as well. Yeah, and I've I've heard even things like um, people's perceived sense of social support can have an impact on on their perception of pain. Is that very much so? Oh yes. So this is a this is not the same though as saying pain is all in your brain, right? No. So I think it's it's important to realize that pain is similar. Let's let's use. Uh, hearing as an example. Mm-hmm. So, um, when you when you hear a beautiful piece of music, what does what do your ears pick up? Oh, you're asking me. I'm asking you. Yes. What do you What do your ears pick up? Uh, my ears pick up the sounds, the vibrations. Yeah, your ears pick up vibration, but they don't pick up necessarily. Uh, that your brain creates, takes those vibrations, puts them into context, and creates this blissful experience of hearing a beautiful piece of music. Right. So, so the the vibrations are different than the perception. Right. The same kind of thing happens with pain, and so so that that perception of the music is is formed by a lot of other things besides just the vibrations. Right. If some if some alien species came down that doesn't perceive vibrations and then sees everybody you know sitting in a concert hall and they're watching all these vibrations come out to the to the humans around and like what is all of this you know it it doesn't make sense if you don't have that context for it right the same the same goes for pain the the sensors in in your body that we like to call them danger sensors or the the technical t- term is nociceptors mm-hmm. um they just sense too much heat too much cold wrong chemicals or too much pressure Right. Those are really and and it's so it's extremes of things. And so if they do, they'll start sending messages up. But that needs to be uh, that needs to be a, evaluated by your brain to determine dangerous, not dangerous. Right. So in in one way, yes, it is all in your in your head. But that's just because. <laughs> All of consciousness is in our head. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a there's a great TED talk by a guy named Anil Seth that talks about the nature of perception and consciousness and the things that we perceive are created much more from within than recorded from outside of us. Right. And so so in one way, yes, it's in your head, but not any more so, any more so than the rest of your existence. Right. And, and you know, I, I think that there's sort of two ways, I mean, there's probably more, but I can, two ways of looking at this sort of spring to mind that, you know, a musician could be sort of overwhelmed in a negative way by all of the factors that could be contributing to a sense of pain. Another way to look at it would be that there there are that many more opportunities to um, build resilience. Absolutely. Yeah, I tend I tend to frame it so if I see people who have a difficult problem, I say this is a difficult problem, and there's a lot of factors that are influencing it. But guess what? There's a lot of factors that are influencing it that we can influence also. Yeah. And you don't have to influence all of them. Right. You know, little changes can. the The goal isn't to be perfect, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and and the context in which we're living from moment to moment is con- is is constantly shifting. So, um, you know, we don't we're not going to be perfect and find one solution that's going to work. And I also for think it's time. it's imp- yeah, absolutely, and and I also think it's it's not so much how many of those things aren't right; it's how well your body can tolerate things that aren't right. Right. And and that that build a bigger cup. I'm again. I think. It's it's not the stress that we are under. It's our body's response to that stress. And there's many ways that we can uh, make our body more resilient to that stress. Yeah. Strength training's one, but I think there's a lot of other uh, interesting things out there as well. We need to wrap up soon, but there's one thing I wanted to speak with you about, which is this idea that um, a lot of this is um, very subjective in that different solutions and different combinations of solutions are going to work for different people. And you you spoke in one of your podcasts about how one person might go to a yoga class and if they've done yoga before, they find that the pace is is great. They can do all the movements. They end up feeling 
great after the yoga class. Someone else might go to that same yoga class, but they've never done yoga before and they find it to be a very intimidating experience. Um, or maybe even if they find it physically manageable, they, they they feel a little bit uncoordinated because they're just not as familiar with the movements and it actually becomes a very stressful experience. So that, that the... Um, the resilience building capacity of any given intervention is not in the activity. It's more in the individual's response. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think we just, we, we can't spend too much time thinking about what should be and just pay attention to what is. So if, if the, the experience feels like it's overstressing your body, if it takes too long to recover from it, or it feels like a decidedly negative experience, uh, then it's, that's, I think that's interesting. That's something to look at. What made that a negative experience? Um, are there is that something that I should just avoid and move into something different, or is that something that I should lean into a bit and just adjust how much I'm doing of it? That strikes me as being very empowering for people that they get to, if 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 it's not an experience that is um, helpful for them, that doesn't mean they they did it wrong or that there's anything wrong with them. It just might be that there's something that's going to be more effective. Absolutely. Do you have advice for musicians about how they can begin to um, know themselves and sort of curate solutions for themselves? I think part of it's just being curious and exploring and seeing what's out there and trying some different things. The I, I tend to have people kind of consider how they feel on a daily basis and you know, I feel kind of average. Am I a little below average? Am I a little above average? Am I feeling super awesome or am I actively flaring up? Yeah. You know, on kind of like a, a five-point scale like that and just track what you did and how that affected you. And if things are sending you below average for too long, then that might be a little bit too much. But uh, if, if you're responding, I think the it's hard to get information, especially in terms of like physical stressors, exercising. You don't always get great information in the moment. You might be like if it's an exercise or a, or a class or something like that, you might feel pretty good during the class. And the next day you feel pretty rough. Right. Um, you might feel pretty rough for a couple of days after that. Um, just because you didn't feel bad doing the movements doesn't mean that that wasn't too much for you. Yeah. And the same goes on the opposite end of things. You can feel some discomfort as you're doing it, but if you know the the next day you're you're back to normal, that that's a a pretty good indicator that your body tolerated that discomfort just fine. Yeah. So just keeping track of of how you're feeling and how how different things affect how you're feeling. Yeah, I I'm I'm really glad you said that. Um, I, I think certainly in our in our music practice, but I think this can sort of leak into other areas of life too. There, we can have this idea that we have, there's like a program that we have to stay on. So, you know, every day I go into the practice room and I do my scales and then my, you know, uh, sort of a set routine. And then, sure. and then we can approach exercise in the same way. And um, it can be easy to feel like a failure if you change the program or decide to take it easier on a given day. But yeah. it sounds like, you know, you feel that this is really um, a key part of building resilience. Yeah. So I thought going into my job that I was going to have to spend a lot more time hassling people to do more. Right. And it turns out that I have to spend a lot more time hassling people to do less and yeah. be smarter about it. <laughs> yes. Um, be because I, I think across the board, people are, and I think especially musicians tend to be a little bit, uh, type A achievers um, trying to do something uh, pretty amazing will push and push and push and ig ignore the signs that your body's giving you uh, and look at it as something to to be conquered rather than something to work with. Yeah. You know, if your body's, if you're, if your body's a crying baby, you don't just shut the door and continue on with what you're doing. You see what the baby needs. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think this can be a, a huge source of um, confidence for musicians um, to, you know, w when we start to to be more responsive to what our body is telling us, um, our body tends to, I think, tell us more, or we become better at reading those signals. 
And and I think this actually translates into not just physical resilience, but also sort of mental and emotional resilience. I think feeling like you have um, some sort of uh, healthy relationship with your body, and I don't mean it in, in terms of body image as much, but just as that you're like in sort of communication with your body can can help people become just generally more confident performers. Absolutely. You're using your body to perform. So yeah. having a good connection with your body, just as, as you might with your instrument, is I think hugely important. Yeah. And I and I think some people are just kind of able to do that. And I think for some people it's something that needs to be uh developed. So I think potentially for musicians, like the people who end up being very successful, get there partially by luck. <laughs> they partially just they, they they happen to be the ones who don't get injured and they happen to be the ones that just through some alchemy sort out how to have that relationship with their body. Yeah. And then there's others who may I, I think there's others who might be able to reach levels like that if they were taught some of those skills along the way. At least yeah. I think that's what we see in athletics where we see the 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 level of competition across the board rising up because it's not just the lucky ones who make it there. Yeah. It's planned by a lot of folks. And so I think some of that a little bit of that similar mindset might be applicable to musicians as well. Yeah. So not just leaving it to luck that, that, uh, you know, put, put the time and the practice in, but not leave it to luck that your body is going to do okay with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a great place to leave it. That's a, a really hopeful and empowering note, I think. Great. So just before we sign off, Cody, um, can you just let people know how they can learn more about your work or even possibly work with you if they're interested? So the the easiest place to find me is at uh, musiciansmaintenance.com. Okay. My main project right now is uh, basically trying to put together a, uh, a curated newsletter where I try and take all of these complex things and distill them into something simpler for people you know, in a weekly email. Yeah, the um, newsletter is so, awesome. I, I have to say it's really thank great. You. Yeah. So and, and I'm going to go through and start putting in uh, some uh, exercises for the body parts that we've been talking about and, and some things like that. So that's that's the, the main place uh, to find me. And uh, if you're there, hit reply and talk to me. Um, and Or you can email me at Cody at musiciansmaintenance.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Musicians Maintenance, but I'm kind of a pass-fail social media person. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm mildly active on that. But yeah. but I'm putting more of my attention into the the newsletter side of things because that's where I think that I can help people the most. Yeah, yeah. And then you you have a podcast that has that has maybe four or five episodes. I do, and I'm I'm looking at the podcast more as a way to. I guess create little mini courses yeah. or snippets of things. So I don't know if anytime soon I'm going to have it be a, a formal podcast and I don't know if it's something that I'll be updating regularly, but if I have a, a big chunk of information that I think people need to understand in order to get more out of what I'm putting out there, um, that's kind of where that is. So there are, there are a couple episodes there that are full of the, uh, my thoughts on musician's health and the water. I go pretty deep into the water and the cup analogy yeah. Um, and uh, micro breaks and some other things like that. So feel free to check those out as well. Great. I'll I'll link those so people can find Great, them. Thanks. And then if it, they can subscribe if they want. And if there's a new episode, then then they'll get it. Super. Awesome. So thank you so much for taking the time again. And um, it pleasure. was really a pleasure speaking with you. It was fun. Bye-bye. And that's the show for this week. Big thanks to Cody once again for taking the time to speak with me and in particular doing it so early in the morning. So we were speaking at 8 a.m. my time here in Newfoundland and 4.30 a.m. in Colorado. Thank you for tuning in. Show notes, as always, which include links to any resources mentioned in this episode, live over on my website, which is www.musicmindandmovement.com. 
If you have a question or a comment or even an idea for the show, you can email me at karen at musicmindandmovement.com. And you can also connect on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Music Mind and Movement. And I always love connecting with people there. Although I have to admit, I've been a little bit absent on social media, but I do check in from time to time. Okay, I think that's it for now. I look forward to speaking to you next time.